0: Welcome to Marine Lions, a podcast about Mumbai's hidden worlds, from the suburbs to the sea. I'm Raghu Karnad. Like many of you, I lived in big cities my entire life. I was born in Breach Candy Hospital, and I think I've had the sounds of traffic and construction beating on my ears ever since. Suddenly, though, I'm seeing more and more of my friends moving out of Bombay, moving to quiet places hill towns, or villages, and the reason they give is always the same, their mental health. It's been known for almost a century that life in big, densely populated cities comes with higher risks of anxiety, depression, and even more serious mental illness. Still, our cities are only growing, and our world is only becoming more and more an urban one. And only very few of us can afford to move away to greener pastures in Goa or Uttarakhand, So for everyone else, it's an urgent question. Can cities like Mumbai grow without becoming worse for us psychologically? And how can we put the mental back into our environmental health? That's the kind of question that Ruchita Chandrasekhar thinks about. She's a psychologist with a special interest in behavioral health, trauma, and the ways in which we view or hide psychological health in Indian society. And she's born and raised and still often in Mumbai though she's since lived in Chicago and in New Delhi. Ruchita, it's really great to be speaking with you. Thanks for joining us.
1: Of course, thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, and of course, uh, it's been an incredibly anxious time. We're talking sort of in the middle of the second wave. Many of us are probably speaking to therapists in one capacity or another. So I'm glad to be to be interviewing you. Tell me, as a psychologist and a researcher, what do you know about the connection between urban life and mental health? And is there anything that you've learned more recently in the context of this pandemic?
1: I am a second generation girl. My grandparents moved from the south to Bombay. My mom was born and raised in Bombay. So I grew up with the crowd. I grew up with the overstimulation. I grew up in a way where a lot of baseline anxiety was just normal. You just had to move fast. You had to get everything done. You couldn't pause in one place. You just get oriented from school buses to railway trains to then you're going to work and then you're not making as much money. You grow up in these really small houses. So it's the only normal that I knew for a long time till I moved outside the country and saw what space can do, what better air can do, what you know, not having the stench of garbage and things like that can actually do for your overall well-being and just levels of exhaustion even. But again, that's a feature of my privilege that I was able to have that experience. But with urban life and mental health, I think Things are just getting more and more overstimulated just as pressures increase. And we're seeing this with younger kids to older folks, right? So children now have more competitive environments in schools, but also don't have as much place to play outside, to have that kind of pro-social coping skill. And with the pandemic, another thing that we've noticed with developmentally for children is that they're more, they're, they've had to be more cooped up in these homes, in their homes as well, have school at home stay at home, not be able to go outside. And in a city like Bombay, there's not a lot of space. So if your parents are fighting in one room, you're also probably having class in the same room and you can't go outside and you can't do so many things. So I think urban life and mental health is very closely correlated with limitations and how all your life is about adjusting to more and more and more limitations that come along. In your introduction, you said that, I don't know if a city like Bombay is going to be conducive to mental health. And with the way at which we're progressing, I'm not sure anymore, because the city is just getting faster. Things are just getting more and more stressful and finances, right? It's a very expensive city as well to live in. So those are the things that I've noticed so far.
0: That's really interesting. You know, I think that the way that I've, that I've imagined the pandemic's effect is sort of in the opposite direction. We know that the city that we used to see lots of people and especially in city life, we're used to being exposed to, to society, to crowds and to company. And the pandemic has meant that we've withdrawn. So in my mind, it's always been the quality of urban life has been turned upside down by the pandemic. But, what you've, but you've just pointed out something that's equally true, which is that the effect of uh, social distancing kind of also compounds some of the qualities of urban life, which is just not having space, which is sort of feeling cooped in.
1: Yeah, in fact, a lot of people now do therapy from home. And I can't tell you how many times someone knocks, Or they have to type and tell me my parents are in the same room and they think I'm in a meeting.
0: I think I've been in that situation. You need a a sense of privacy in order to speak to your therapist comfortably. And even if someone's in another room, which itself can be kind of a privilege to have an empty room to yourself, that idea that they're just on the other side of the door and they just might overhear what you're saying, that probably is really a dampener for your clients or for anyone who's trying to express themselves.
1: No, absolutely. And that's why we had to then introduce the flexibility of let's just do an audio call. So you can step outside and say you're not getting better network at home. Right. You know, so I think there's space. There's just you're also in the same stressful environment through the day. There's a lot of cabin fever. It's just a sense of suffocation and claustrophobia and whatnot. And in larger cities where space, just physical space is a lot lesser the symptoms and the tendencies to suffocation and claustrophobia and anxiety are just so much higher because you also just don't have enough air to breathe. Yes. Right? You yes. don't have parks. You, you can't afford to go to a street where you don't hear honking. So there's sensory overload as well. A lot of times the street lights are on through the night. So your sleep's not going to be good enough because there's probably a light peeking in. Right. It's so many factors like that, right? Bombay also has a lot of older buildings, which means often during the monsoon, I remember our building folks only would just be anxious that if it rains too hard, is our building going to collapse?
0: There you go. Yes.
1: What does redevelopment mean? It's just so many factors that come through like every monsoon. my We live on the ground floor and my mom is someone who has anxiety about what all she needs to pack. It's just routine every May that she will pack. So during something like the pandemic, now she's just like, I did not pack this year. What if something happens to you? You know, my dad or, you know, her and what do you do in situations like that. So it's so many factors that you're just surviving through. You've just adjusted with it. You don't look for another alternative because you also don't put a lot of faith in your governments that they'll provide you with one.
0: Right. And, that, and obviously that's been another source of insecurity right now that at a level that, that many of us have never experienced before. These factors you've talked about are so relatable. I think that even if you you know have always been had a lot of advantages and lived a comfortable life, we've all dealt with with feeling kind of assailed by noise, by streetlights that interferes with our sleep, by just having the city kind of like beating in on. It's not like that city dwellers have have any monopoly on sources of anxiety, because I'm sure there's an entirely equally large set of stressors for people who live in villages and, and in the countryside. I feel like it's not often discussed in terms of mental health, despite how often mental health is in the conversation these days. So... When we talk about cities, about city life, especially in India, we do talk about physical health now, and there's so much evidence that it's that city life is not very good for our for our physical health. The best evidence seems to be the air quality indexes, which we all live with. Um, you and I are both actually speaking from New Delhi right now. Little secret. Just before we we be, we began recording, we were sharing what a, what a source of anxiety and discomfort living and breathing in New Delhi is. And of course, it's not just Delhi. Most of the cities with the worst air pollution in the world are Indian cities. As we try to plan healthier cities, is there actually a way to make them better for mental health as well?
1: I think firstly, city dwellers, right? Those who've been born and raised in cities, because it's so conditioned to survival, we get used to a lot of these stressors. And we know how to meander our ways through it. Air is bad. Okay, save some money, maybe get an air purifier or get access to a doctor or depending again on how much privilege you have, how the access to resources and whatnot, right? How are you able to help yourself is the first thing we look at versus how can this be prevented? So there's a level of conditioning. And I think for folks who live in different parts of the country, the city often becomes a romanticized concept versus a very critical thinking aspect of maybe it's not everything that it's made up to be till one of us leaves the city goes and lives somewhere else we're like oh my god like we've lived through so much stress I think cities need to be planned better with assumptions around stress like what can be stressful factors noise factors air spaces I think as someone who grew up in Bombay and didn't see space the concept of a balcony is big for me And when I work with people who are going through depressive episodes or even going through episodes of anxiety, I often ask them, do you have a balcony or do you have a terrace? Because we know that open spaces, access to air and just sunlight and just the vastness of it all can have a positive impact on your mental health. So a lot of times when you're at the peak of a depressive episode and you don't wanna get out of bed and you know that all you need to do is just like walk two steps to a balcony and just sit there for a little bit, it's possible that in 15 minutes, There might be the slightest fluctuation in mood on the better end, right? So cities need to be planned better. So again, there's people, there's air, there's noise, there's sensory overload, there's overstimulation factors on the environmental front. But also work stress looks different now. School stress looks different. Financial stress looks different. And communication from our governmental bodies looks very different. Crisis management, natural disasters, man-made disasters, communication, all of these things need to be factored in. I don't know if there is a perfect way to do it all. But at this point, I think a lot of citizens are also looking for collaboration that governments care, Yeah. right? Like during Nisarg last year, or even when Thackeray talks to the citizens about what the BMC has done uh, for Monsoon last year and how they're preparing for this year, it's very new to us. Okay. We've not experienced yes. this kind of communication. And I've noticed a significant drop in levels of anxiety when your leader starts talking to you and not talking at you.
0: Oh, that's fascinating.
1: Yeah. So if bodies are able to communicate with just smaller communities also, what do you need here so we can make your life better? Folks, even on an individual and community level, can start paying attention to what their stressors actually are. Is it garbage pickups? Is it that your kacha housing needs a little more developmental facilities in place? Do you need health facilities? What do you need? We need to feel like someone's listening, right? And then you can put things in place about how a city needs to be planned.
0: That's really interesting. I often think that public transport or just transport and how people commute is probably a massively underrated and under examined source of mental health factor. Because physical health as well. But mental health is something that we're so far behind in measuring and evaluating. Because even people who are privileged enough to be driving to work every day, you know, that's problematic in some ways. But we think about the phrase road rage, which is a phrase that comes to us from America and from a place where it's assumed that you have the comfort of getting to work in a car. Now, rage, that's a strong word. And that's just about getting to your, you know, that's just about commuting. Uh, these idiomatic phrases kind of led us into you know, they give us some perspective on what's really going on. Now that's if you have a car. People who have to take buses to commute and um, lend so much of their day, their time, and their physical their physical stamina simply to getting to the place where their work begins. Uh, I think that's something that's that's probably demands much better understanding on what it does to your mental health. And the Delhi Metro, it always strikes me as There's something about having well-built infrastructure that seems like it is meant to take care of people that I think transforms their behavior and transforms psychological condition for the duration that they are on the metro. Maybe I'm romanticizing it, but that's such a vague impression, partly based on how I feel when I get on the metro. Obviously, all of these conversations are, are shot through with the factor of privilege. Thinking about Mumbai, events like the 2005 floods, or the later ones in 2015, in 2018, the floods that keep recurring, do they leave a mark on the city's psychological makeup? Is that a kind of, is there a post-traumatic condition that comes with these natural disasters? And is that something we just don't pay attention to because typically the people who are worst affected are poor and working class? 100%,
1: there is definitely post-traumatic stress disorder. And I think 2005 left such a strong mark On the city because it derailed the city in ways that we hadn't experienced it before. Every year when the monsoons come, residents of the city will not romanticize the monsoons as much as visitors will because we know what's coming. We know hills breaking loose, we know manholes are going to be open, we know that if you live in low-lying areas things are just going to get bad, we know transport's going to get difficult. It's a very frustrating three months Post 2005, yes, there was post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, heightened cases of that. And I think it's persisted in different ways also. Like I was telling you before, my mother's a very typical example and we've talked about it, that this is her post-traumatic stress. In 2005, because we live on the ground floor, our house drowned in five and a half feet deep water. Oh no. And my mom was fresh out of cancer surgery in her neck and my parents were stuck for 16 hours in the water. like chest level water and they're tall people which is why they lucked out but the consequence of that now is that 16 years later all my mom's saris are still packed all the documents are never in our house there is nothing valuable that is that remains in the house from may to october because we lost so much we lost so many things the house as my dad calls it was a cricket ground for a solid year after that because how do you rebuild and I remember the government gave us 3,000 rupees, depending on the people's names on the ration card, which is also a privilege, no? like because I helped and have a ration card, which means she didn't get anything. She also lost her belongings, her whole house drowned. So, again, no communication, no collaboration, right? So people need to prepare. We need to, we, the, there's so much pressure on the citizens um, based on how no one's going to have your back. No one's going to have reparation measures after this. We don't know. Again, this is very new to us in the last year, year and a half, that BMC has actually been coming up to clear trees. They've been very collaborative and whatnot, right? So far, Bombay, I think, has been characterized a lot by survival. Survival is a very typical trauma response. Right. Everything is based just around how do I prevent this for myself? How do I correct this for myself? How do I consistently protect myself, which is persistent anxiety which is something you will commonly see in the city, even as a joke among communities that, ha it's raining, so you have
0: And if you're sitting sufficiently far away or above the high tide line, then you get to romanticize that. You get to call it the spirit of Mumbai. You get to applaud and feel good about how people struggle back to their feet and, and try to pull their lives together, whether it's after a flood or a cyclone or a building or an overbridge collapsing you know, we get to romanticize that resilience, but is there something wrong with the way we, 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 we romanticize the resilience of Bombay?
1: I think there's generally something problematic in how we romanticize the concept of resilience. Right. Resilience is something that is born out of survival. And yes, it's a good thing because it will help you tide through numerous things, but we also need to address the problem or the trauma that caused you to become resilient in the first place. Why did it happen? And a lot of times this whole spirit of Mumbai thing is also a very escapist thing for people to use that, oh, the city will just survive through everything. It shouldn't have to though. A lot of these things can be prevented and no one talks about that a lot. So even when you romanticize it with like, you just have to have some chai and some pakodas and look at the view and the clouds and whatnot. It's just like, no. No, this shouldn't have happened in the first place. So yes, there's something problematic in how we romanticize resilience as a concept. But when it comes to the city again and again, we also need to think about how we don't hold systems accountable then. Because a lot of these things can be prevented. You can clear the drains out. You can warn low-lying areas differently. You can have helpline rooms and wall rooms for when people need to be rescued from different places. You can set budgets aside for marginalized folks and folks who've lost a lot of things to have some kind of insurance. Right. 23 years of me living there, we never saw that. So there's no hope, right? So in the light of hopelessness, when your survival instincts are so high, you have no choice but to be resilient. And it should right. never have to come down to that.
0: And for some reason, it's it's more feasible to envision building a road in the middle of the sea that stretches down the west coast of Bombay, then to think about these, these small measures that actually uh, dignify and kind of protect and reduce the vulnerability of the people who who are the inhabitants of Bombay. You know, two of the other conversations we've had on this show, one with Amitav Ghosh and one with Dia Mirza, are, feel very relevant. And um, and I think that anyone who's, who's interested should jump onto those and listen to those as well, because we take it for granted that the resilience and maybe there's a parallel between, you know, if you romanticize resilience, you're also assuming that you don't have to prepare for anything worse in the future. But the fact of climate change means that Mumbai should actually be preparing for more in the future. And the resilience that it shows, which is itself a kind of a mask, might actually be misleading us about, about the situation that lies ahead. And this recent cyclone, Taute. Was a bit of a hint. It actually didn't hit the city and it, we might have seen a very different picture if it had hit it full on. You hear about people experiencing something new called eco-anxiety. That's a reaction, I suppose, to knowing what's happening to our environment and our climate and not knowing what to do about it. I can certainly imagine that in Mumbai, the chronic pressures that people feel on their mental health are being compounded by eco-anxiety. Since it's becoming clearer and clearer how vulnerable the city is and how vulnerable its residents are to natural disasters. I like the point you, you mentioned earlier about having leaders who are communicative and who are talking about these things, about how that's one way of alleviating anxiety. Tell us if eco-anxiety is something that, um, that you've encountered that makes sense to you and what your advice would be for addressing it since I imagine it's something more and more of us are going to be feeling.
1: Absolutely. And I think a lot of eco-anxiety is born out of a feeling of helplessness. Another thing that we're noticing is a lot of atypical climate changes, right? It's not cute for it to rain in November in Bombay. It's not monsoon. It shouldn't be happening in the first place. Temperatures have been rising more and more with every year. So when someone has to take a BST bus to go from one place to another and if the bus is late, you're standing under the sun for way longer. Now you're prone to a migraine headache. Now you're prone to a heat stroke. You may not have access to healthcare resources. It's so many factors and stressors, right? Lots of folks walk also to work in a city like Bombay, right? And you don't know what kind of random atypical change might happen with the weather. And in Bombay, it's usually either the rain Or the rise in the temperature or the humidity just draining everything out of you, right? It's a collective feeling also of helplessness. You don't know when the next thing might happen. And we don't know the future of the city anymore, right? You also see so many of these opinion pieces around. Bombay is going to drown by like 2050, 2060. Uh Then what? What do we do? Where do people go? Is anyone trying to prevent any of this? How much anxiety can the city just consistently be in? Which is why I focused on communication, right? Like if something like this comes up and if there is a minister, there is a body, there are things being done, you know, whether or not it's effective in that moment, I feel like people will just start feeling reassured that someone cares, right. which can be a measure to help manage some of the eco-anxiety. I think in the larger sense, everyone knows that a lot of this is doomed and we're all scared. But the fact that no one's doing anything about it makes it worse. And there's only so much survival energy your brain also has. After a point, we're going to burn out, we're going to get exhausted, we're going to give up, or we're not going to be able to leave. And I don't know what we're going to do in a situation like that, which is why communicative governmental bodies help. You know, letting letting us know that this is what we're doing before this, This is where they're planting that. These are the other agricultural measures we've taken. This is what we're going to do for the drought situation. So it just starts feeling like there is some kind of control over the situation to at least help us get through this year, even whether or not we make it to 2050 and how apparently the city is going to drown. Like there are so many of these opinion articles that keep coming out. And I often just see residents now getting to a place of... Yeah well we'll see when that happens cuz it's not like anyone else has our back and I think that's something we need to start addressing as well in managing it's,
0: that. This sounds like an insight that actually cuts to the to the heart of our understanding of of psychology and and of therapy which is that you know we may have we may face problems that we can't just fix. We may not be able to iron everything out but being able to communicate about it and being able to feeling that that some of this is being expressed, that, that's therapeutic on its own, that's beneficial on its own, and that already begins the process of healing and of mitigating some of the mental health effects. Does that sound like a correct description?
1: I think communities need to feel listened to. And a lot of that listening is difficult for those in positions of power to do. It makes you very uncomfortable, but you truly have to be uncomfortable. No, you can sit there and give a press conference and say, we're doing this, 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 this. Did you ask your communities if that's what they want? Have you gone and checked if they're getting those things? Like a lot last year also, through the first wave of the pandemic, so many of these promises were made. And I used to ask Uber drivers if they've gotten any of these things. And they're like, no, it's a bureaucratic mess. We didn't get any of this stuff. Same kind of helplessness, right? It's not eco-anxiety as such, but it's the larger, this thing of how is this a democratic system if no one's listening?
0: Absolutely.
1: Right? So if you have local governmental bodies, you have your BMC officials, you have all of these folks, they need to go out there in these communities, see what the problem is, listen to the people and then collaborate with them on measures, right? Versus just throwing it at them and not checking for even efficacy after that. Like the Miti River, the river every year that thing is hell. And they're like, the Miti River is flooding, the Miti River flooding, the Miti River flooding. What do we do? What do we do? Okay, can you tell us what you've done so far? Like we just keep fixating on the problem, right? And then like, okay, what is the long-term solution to this? Like every year you'll find one day when Bombay floods and all the news channels are just focusing on the Mitty River. And they're like, it's flooding, it's flooding, it's flooding. Go to those communities then, no. Put more disaster management measures over there. So I think it, that's the thing. It's very uncomfortable for those in positions of power to listen to communities. But they they need to manage their own egos and do it for the larger progress of our country and of different cities and of places.
0: That is so much to think about. And it, it makes so much sense to consider that just talking about it, which is the kind of advice that you would give personal advice that you'd give to someone who is stressed, who's sitting right next to you, might also be the kind of advice that needs to resonate in different ways into policy spaces, into how we design the city and just how we imagine it. There's a city where, where people don't feel as alone when they feel vulnerable and where even if we are facing a future where floods and droughts are almost certainly part of the picture, that people will feel like the city is listening to them. Thank you so much, Rujita. I think I feel a little bit less anxious already. And thank you for sharing a really fine perspective on, on how our mental health connects to these places where we live.
1: Absolutely, thank you so much for having me. And a lot of times mental health stressors don't have to constitute psychopathology. Just like every headache doesn't mean you have a brain tumor, It just sometimes means it's a headache. Sometimes you can have random bouts of stress about different things and your body can respond differently. All concerns still need to be addressed, even when it comes to the environments that we live in.
0: That's wonderful to keep in mind. Thanks very much.